Right, today I'm in Oxfordshire with Martin Chapman, or to those that know and love him, Lofty. Lofty, thanks very much for agreeing to do it. Pleasure, Simon. Um, I think I've rather unfairly painted you as a bit of a miserable bugger in my blogs for Star Sports, but in reality, you're like happiest on a dog track or a racehorse, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. I know you try and say, you always say that, and miserable Martin, miserable Lofty. Look, I'm never that way, really. I try and smile for the camera. I mean, sometimes if people smile, if I smile, people say I'm breaking wind or something, it's, it's not that bad. <laughs> Look, I mean, my background's on the race course and the, the Graham tracks, and as you say, that's pretty where well, I'm most at home, really. You know, I've been doing it since, you know, I literally could, could walk with it. I mean, going to Graham tracks, my granddad, God bless him, and Gran and Uncle used to take me to the uh, the Graham track at Portsmouth when I was about five years old and could barely see over the rail. So I've always been going racing, and yeah, I've always been, that's always been, you know, part of me, really, being at the dogs and being on the horses. I think I went to Brighton when I was about seven or eight, first time with mum on the train. Took about an hour and a half to get down there, and you know, I can recall standing on the rails at Brighton and watching the horses go past. So I've always enjoyed the racing and being out on the turf. And I've been lucky enough, to say, to work there, you know, m most of my career, really. Career, you call it. So like I'm sort of like a footballer. But yeah, I've been there most of my life working on the race course and race tracks. And yeah, it's definitely the place I like to be. But again, look, I'm in the office sitting in now doing a bit of training for style on the greyhounds and what have you. And I'm all happier. And my bank of computer screen sat behind me looking like I'm some working in this city. But, you know. Playing, play as we go, but yeah, it's all part of the fun. I still enjoy, so still enjoy the race course, though, and I'm a happy soul. Yeah, well, you've you've been around as long mm. as I can remember. Um, didn't know you properly, but you've always been lofty, and that's lofty. Um, but have you ever had a proper job? <laughs> Funny enough, so I had a friend of mine who used to say to me, like, well, what do you do? You stand in the middle of a field and wave your arms about. It's like, you know, I think he did a bit of painting and decorating. So would he say that I've had a proper job? Yeah, I've had a few, I suppose you could call proper jobs. I worked for the post office for a little while, and what parcel force and I used to sell paint and I've sold glazing products and uh, yeah a few other bits and pieces a bit of ducking and diving but I was always working as well using the evenings and clerking it with dog tracks and, and doing bits and bobs like that so to say proper job it's a bit of a you know some of us take our job you know seriously I'm a professional Simon you know every time I go out and do my job I'm a professional whether it's a racetrack or sitting down here and working in the home or you know, working in the office, so it's all, all, yeah, but I suppose a proper job, a nine to five job, I've had, a, I've had two or three, but no, I mean, uh, this has always been what I wanted to do, I mean, say, my granddad and uncle, they had one of the very old uh, betting shops going back before I was born, really, one of the sort of first time betting shops were legalised, now are involved in that, so I was basically brought up on racing, uh, you know, reading the racing, my sporting life at the thing then, when I was about five or six years old, sort of sat on the floor reading it, and I was always brought into racing, and yeah, that's how I've been, so... But yeah, I've had a couple of proper jobs, should we say, in inverted commas. Yeah, those jobs that you mentioned, all the jobs that foremen used to get so that they could still go racing in the afternoon, at least at the local meetings. So I'm assuming you started going racing when you were a kid. So you first started as a, well, saying that, your granddad had a betting shop. So were you a, were you a punter or were you always into the bookmaking side of things? No, I always, listen, I always enjoyed a bet. Even when I was a kid, you know, I used to get my grand to put the bets on the local lab books across the road. And, you know, I'm sure like... Most people of our age, we'd been in there when we were sort of 16 or 17, trying to sneak it under the counter. You know, the advantage of being a big lad, I could always get away looking a little bit older than what I actually was. So even though I was always all young, youthful, very good looks and that, you know, so it was a bit of a struggle to convince them I was 18, really. But, uh, yeah, you know, so I've always been going to betting shops and punting. Um, yeah, no, I've always really, that's been my side of it. And obviously I've got into the bookmaking side over it eventually and always been fascinated by the bookmakers and how they work. And like most people, you know, I'm sure like young Ben, who will probably come on to later on in our... Uh, little chat you know he was very fascinated by the way bookmakers worked and the color of it so i always thought to myself i'd end up in that side of the business somewhere and luckily that's where i am today 
Would you remember the first day you actually got paid working for a bookie? I assume he was a floor man. You're right. Oh, I, I was. Yeah. Funny enough, you mentioned uh, in your book, which you might have plugged once or twice, that your first bet was with uh, with Ricky and Son, wasn't it? Of yeah. Portsmouth. Yeah. yeah Cheltenham. It was, um, yeah. He was the first bookmaker I worked for. Ricky. Obviously, my background is coming from Portsmouth. That's where I was born and bred. And to the middle of the I lived there for like you know the best part of forty odd years. And yeah, it was at Bath uh, one day. He was in a silver ring and he obviously had a lot of trust in me. They stick me out into the, to the main ring on the floor, on the radios, back and, and it's, that was in the days, obviously, before you had the exchanges and everybody was the same price and you could get horses in the silver ring that were like 10 and 12 to 1 in the silver ring. In the main ring, they'd be taking 7 or 8 and we were using that to our advantage. You know, we're backing horses at like, I'm laying horses to fellow bookmakers at 7 and 8 to 1 and they're backing, backing the uh, silver ring at 12s and... I suddenly found I was quite good at that. And I think Ricky was a bit like, you know, you're all good. Yeah, we're like, we'll have you more often. And I was on wages at the time. And I thought, why don't I have a share? He offered me a share, actually, at the start. I thought, why don't I have a share in hindsight? And I think I got the pretty sum of £30, which I haven't spoke to Ricky at the time. It was like like him sort of paying somebody a national lottery. You know, it was like being on 25 grand a week, getting a 30 quid from Ricky at the time. So went there the following time, had a share. And yeah, it basically went on from there. So uh, we always enjoyed it in the silver rings. But they were good in those days, size. Si, well, you... You know, probably remember yourself at the Silver Rings. We like used to go to Bath and Windsor on a Monday night. You know, and it was always, it was always pretty decent out in the Silvers. They were pretty vibrant. And they were only going back, I would say, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I'm sounding really old now, but that's only a long ago it was. But yeah, he was the first bookmaker I worked for. My first out of the race, he would have been at Bath. And that was, I remember, I did the very exact same job. But the the alternative was you found it hard to lay the short ones in the. Uh, in the silver <clears throat> ring, so you'd be you could you know lay him, lay him to the books in yeah, indoors and that's that. right. I luckily never fell to the thing of backing a horse and of laying it, so I always got it quite right. <laughs> but. <laughs> so, but you know, we're both of the same sort of era. I mean, you're obviously a fair bit older than me, but who were the, who were the faces that made a, an initial big impression on you? Because I know I used to look around <clears throat> in awe around the better ring. Was there any that really made lofty sort of do a no, double not, take? Not particularly. Um, I remember in the silver ring, there was a bookmaker called Wilf Gilbert from the Midlands. He always bet on like an orange board and he always seemed to be like ahead of the market. And if he was a, on a move, you thought half of it, you'd follow him and see what moves he was on. And he was one you always to keep an eye on out there. I, know, I remember one day we, there was a move for a horse inside at, um, at Bath. It might have been Windsor. I remember we backed it with him, and it was like it was like beating, you know, splitting the atom, beating Wilf Gilbert with this bet. And we backed this horse with him to win a fair few quid for our time, and I can recall it winning. But I remember him being the, the, the big shot outside. Yeah, a few of the dogs as well. Ross Jackson, who were coming to again later on, a bookmaker at Portsmouth Dogs. I mean, he was a real, you know, before his time and a, a bit of a character. He was a bit of a playboy, to be fair to him. But there's a few bookmakers like that, I suppose, back in the day as well, in that sort of era. And he was certainly one of those, yeah. And then Ross was certainly a, a real bookmaker. You thought, yeah, you could be like him one day as well, you know. So you, um, so what were your sort of, what were your sort of haunts in early days? I was a Portsmouth dog man. That was my main place. That was always where I used to go. Started going there when I was about sort of, well, I'll say from a kid first of all, but classic misspent youth. I used to go there, you know, when I was sort of 18, 19, 20. Your Friday night, it'd be the first three or four hours to be at Portsmouth Dogs, have a few drinks there maybe, and then go out afterwards. So they're going out during the course of the evening. It would just be a, a night down at Pompey. And, you know, I think I learned a bit more about values. I used to think there's sort of five to four, six to four chances. And used to see the, the without bookmaker was a guy called Stan Bridgman. Um, we had a couple of good dogs, actually. And he used to put on his board five to four, six to four, seven to four, two. And he used to think sometimes, God, he's backing a dog at six to four and thinking you're getting value. You wake up in hindsight and I think, my oh God, you know, look at the percentages he's putting on the board there. 
but like you soon learn <laughs> you know where you're getting the value and where you're not getting the value but no that was my always my formative years with Portsmouth Dogs so they come it took Ricky on the race course to give you your first day's work then did they not did they not really see the uh, potential in you at the <laughs> I ended up just clerking there one night funnily enough again I think we're coming to that later on there was just uh, the, the first night of someone didn't turn up and I was literally told to clerk in about like 15 minutes and that was it and I was away from there and then I started clerking over the cheap side for a few people graduated into the main ring I think at one stage I worked for every bookmaker down the line there in, in some stage never a, a regular job until probably a few years later when I sort of started working there regularly but it was always a face there and you just get to know people don't you it's like when you go any walk of life you go somewhere long enough and you get to be known and you get to be a bit of a face and you know once seeing me I know I've got a face for radio really not for TV but once you see me you don't really forget me do you <laughs> Now, I was going to ask you how many bookmakers you worked for, so obviously loads. So tell us about some of them that would have made a lasting impression. Oh, quite a few. I mean, um, there's plenty of layers up and down the line. I say I've worked for in my time. I've worked for a few, you know, quite chunky layers. I mean, I think a few have wanted to stay more under the radar, but there's a few. I mean, a guy called Jerry from Walton Slaney, who was a, you know, a real sort of strong layer on the race course, and he'd have a right opinion and used to bet to a cards and you know we used to go racing and we'd have some tremendous days at the races we used to bet at all the big meetings on the rails and this is only again not going back too long you know we're probably going back 10 years or so but it was a real buzz at the ring then and the amount of money you could take plenty of people about plenty of money flying about like to Dean Valentine you've interviewed before I know who was always very lively in the ring and you know a few times Jerry would be taken in one I was a bit like oh you know carefully Jill you know sort of like but Dean would be Jill Jill you know to win a monkey Jill to win two grand Jill he'd always be on them Bad impression, Dean, do apologise. But it always wasn't quite good, <laughs> that one bad, yeah. But no, you know, the lights of that, he was, yeah, so certainly I, I enjoyed working for him. There were some, we had some great days and some, and some great nights out there. And they say, obviously, I've, I've slowly come through to working for Star, but I've worked for, yeah, for many a bookmaker, you know, large and small. Been lucky enough to be repped a couple of times. And again, Paul Gold, I think you've spoken to before, Pitt Wick, I was his rep for a while and used to bet at Newbury and Bath and Chepstow and where else. If you had a varying gaffes, I'll, I'll bet for him if he, we were doubled up. So it was always good to get it, yeah, and to get to be known and at least to be respected and trusted, which is obviously a big thing in this game as well, trust. Well, that's the only only prerequisite for working on course, isn't it? Um, any particular stories, any any disasters? I mean, I've, I've had disasters where I've not got the uh, Disaster, yeah. One particularly springs to mind one day at Salisbury. It was during the early days of the computer. Um, the computer was being an absolute nightmare all day. We got the clerking book out. Anyway, we're, we're merrily clerking away, obviously, because it was the age, you know, AGT or NJPC they were called. You know, adamant you were writing the names on the back of the ticket and what they were betting and what it was going on, on anyway. It was a race one, race guy come out, I was in with a 10 to 1 shot, and I think a guy had £250 on a 10 to 1 shot. And it was a confusion whether or not he got a ticket. So we weren't sure, the horse won. Anyway, the guy's come back, and there's a fella standing there, and he's like looking, and I'm like, and I can't find the bet. And I'm like, what, what you got? I goes, what do you have on it, to the guy? And he went, 250 So I thought, okay, it must be him. So we give the guy £2,750. Anyway, horror of horrors, eventually I've looked right to the bottom of the column, and there's £2.50 each way, uh, 33 to one shot that's finished third. And that's the bet he had. Funnily enough, we never found him. Who were you working for then? Oh, I can't say, but um, he'll, no, he'll <laughs> did know. Did you work for them again after? I did actually, yeah. To be fair, the guy was very, it was a genuine mistake. And I don't think there was, there was more than, you know, it was just one of those things that a lot of things contrived. And it was a little bit of a, yeah, some people thought it was quite hilarious. But obviously I didn't at the time. I immediately offered to, you know, sacrifice myself on the spot. But no, still work for the guy. And, um, we're still good friends today, actually. But 
but yeah, he'll he'll know who it is. So, <laughs> so you you learnt to clerk in the clerking book before the computers. Oh, without a doubt, yeah, and yeah. You, so uh, who taught you to do that? So a guy who's no longer with us, a fellow called Ian Kelsby, God bless him, who probably would have been only a year or two younger than me, who died a few years ago um, at Portsmouth Dog Track. Literally one night, there was a character called Slasher, uh, who had a wonderful name. Just used to like turn up and. He was a you know a typical Pompey dog character you know a bit of bluster and used to knock people out. It's just you know what people were like. And there was always like a, a wall of shame at Pompey dogs. There was like a, a sort of a, a metal barrier with like all these names written on it that Slasher had left over over the years in permanent marker. Anyway, he turned up one night from painting and decorating with a brown suit covered in paint. And I remember Kilsley saying, oh, "You can't Clark. You can't work for me like that Tony. His name was Tony. You can't work for me like that Tony. You know." And Lofty, do you want a Clark? And I was like, "We have to show me Kills." And literally within 10 minutes, he'd show me at a clerk. And I was like, this is easy, you know. So, yeah, there we go. That literally was it. Within 10 minutes, I was, I was, I was the clerk. And I was there for a, yeah, for a good few, say, good few weeks, good few months. And then I sort of moved on from there at Portsmouth Dogs. It was a bit fast and furious at the dogs clerking, I'd imagine. It can be, yeah. I've, I mean, Portsmouth was, you know, was getting that way. I mean, I've, I've clerked a couple of times at, Wolf, at Wolfenstow for Ben when Ben was down there eventually. And I can recall clerking one racing post-festival. Like, and they literally are coming at it from all angles. And I was a bit like... And a friend of mine was stood there behind me as I'm scribbling back down furiously. He goes to me, can I do the next race? Like, sort of taking the mic a bit. And I was a bit like, sweat dripping off me. You literally, yeah, could just get the bets down. And you had some idea where you were and what you were taking out of dogs. But, I mean, there's some clerks who, you know, I don't first been the best clerk in the world by, by a country mile. But I don't think I'm that bad. But there's, there's clerks head and shoulders above me, you know, and always has been, always will be. But not, I think I've got a fairly quick brain anyway, so... All right, Loft, you're at the dogs. It's full of sharp punters back in the, uh, well, the, the early 70s when you started, I suppose. <laughs> who, who, Careful, who, who, were the, who, were the, who were the best punters that you ever came across? Who, who used to put the fear of God into your boss? When oh, I don't know. Not punters as such. I, mean, I mentioned Ross earlier on, Ross Jackson. I mean, he was a tremendous bookmaker, but he was also a, a fearless punter as well. There was a great story one night when he... Um, there was, used to be a competition at Portsmouth called the Golden Muzzle, which was sponsored by Lab Books at the time. Now, Lab Books had just taken over a local firm in Portsmouth called RNG Racing. I think they had about 24 shops in Portsmouth. You couldn't imagine it now. Plus the shops Lab Books had as well. So they had literally 30 shops in, in Portsmouth in the surrounding areas. We sponsored this race, the Golden Muzzle. They always price it up. There was three semi-finals, I remember, one night on a Tuesday, I think it was. And there was all three favourites. They weren't, you know, it was there was nothing crooked about it at all. Three open races three favourites. I always remember Ross saying the three favourites are win tonight. And we've all gone around the shops all day long having little 50 quid trebles, 30 quid trebles, tenner trebles, score trebles. They got to the stage where they wouldn't take any more bets on it. Minimum bet was a five, maximum bet was a five or something. But I do recall that night when Ross kept, every time, Labbrook's even sent a bloke down with cash and every time he's going into him he's like, you know, 300 or two something, Ross would take it, then go seven of all. You know, and there was just like, I think there was three, I think three of dogs, I think one would have been like a two to seven shot, I think return like evens. One should have been maybe four to six. I think return like, you know, say, I can't remember, seven or four. And the last one would have probably been the, the, the big one. Would have been like a five to four shot. I think Ross got it off like three or something like that. But tremendous gamble. All three had to win. There was nothing, you know, nothing snide about it. Apart it was just, from the prices. Apart from the prices, obviously, <laughs> yeah. But all three had to win still. It, was, you know, it wasn't like there was, you know, it was a, it was a race worth like three or four thousand pounds to the winner. So they were all tried, as it were. But no, I do recall that. It was, that was a great gamble. But no, no particular punters ever really thought like, oh, you know, I, I respect him. You see a lot of people now, more so now, when I'm working and you, I just see punters come through on the ticker and people who are backing certain dogs and certain horses or mainly horses, really. And you certainly respect, you know, where they're coming from, where the money's coming from, and you follow the money there. And I'm sure later on we'll speak about, you know, my 
low level punting, but that's certainly where a lot of it comes from, I think now. Okay, now, when you were working at the dogs, things were a little bit more relaxed regarding who you took the bets off, you didn't want their birth certificate. And there was a young lad, tell us about this young lad named Benjamin. Yeah, young Benjamin, yeah. So I used to work at Hove as well, and I branched out along the A27, and I used to work some of the uh, afternoon meetings at Hove, and I'm sure this, uh, this young little uh, kid looking like this young, as I kept calling him, a spotty little 13 year old, 14 year old, whatever age he was then, as opposed to with a spotty little 40 year old he is now, but I mean, well, less so now, he's come a long way then, but it always come up and you'd have this pest in the afternoon, you'd be three to one something and it's like, can I have three and a half tenors or it's four something, can I have five tenors? And I thought, I thought this, this lad knows they're going a bit, like, you know, he's blagging prices already, he's only just, you know, he's not out of, not out of long pants yet and he's, uh, he's blagging some prices, so just got to befriend him, you know, when it's like when you see people and you could always tell he was a bit fascinated by the game and yeah, we just slowly got to know, know young Ben as he was called over the years and he's, uh, and his dad Lindsay who was always there with him and, he was just, you know, you'd teach him how to clock and show him how to do this and learn him the fundamentals of tic-tac and he knew the fundamentals of value because, hey, he was, uh, you know, he wasn't one to take 11 or 4 on the ball if it was 3 to 1. He was a bit, he was clever enough for that. So he did his maths pretty well anyway. But yeah, that's how I got to know uh, young Mr. Benjamin Keith. Did he, um, did he used to win or did you still do his, get his money even though he I got... I couldn't remember, I think. I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't think he, was, he would have been the greatest punter, to be honest, but... He's a, uh, yeah, I don't think he would, he would never, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have, would he have been a winner or loser? I'm not sure in those days. I mean, uh, they used to call one. him, yeah, they used to call him Benny the Dog. I remember once the time, because I think his story come from um, when he worked, uh, I think he might work for City Index, and uh, I'm sure if you've interviewed Ben before, I'm sure he'll, he'll probably know, but he, um, I think recall one day there was, uh, they used to do a thing called, they do a thing called Multimut. So basically they multiply the trap numbers together for the forecast. So say six beats five, it's 30, you know, or vice versa. I think there was one day when apparently someone broke into the track overnight and heavily watered the outside of the track. And then they got involved with the, the multi-mutts, obviously selling them, and they were on the inside. So I think every race was one beat two, one beat two, one beat two, two beat one. One might be three in somewhere. Usually the spreads, I don't know, it's around 150, 160. I think it's that made up at about like 30. And I think Ben was on the uh, on the dog section that day. At, uh, it might have been City Index, one of the spread firms in the day, but... You know, I think they. Uh, I think he'd done his money. Well, the firm done their money courtesy of Ben, but he was always known as Benny the Dog to me. So that's where the name names always stuck really since. You know, he's still on my phone now. I think it's Benny the Dog as well. <laughs> so what about yourself? You punt? Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I'm a ferocious punter, but no, I enjoy a bet. I like to follow money. I must admit, for the horses and stuff like that, I do draw my own opinion as well. I've had a few sort of nice touches down the years. Probably now my main bet would be on on the grounds. Um, I love the anti-post betting and betting into anti-post markets in, in grand events. That's probably my main, my main thing I, I enjoy doing now and just follow the open race scene on my dogs. A lot of people, you know, pump the graded and, again, the graded dogs are, are so hard. You know, you've got to specialise on one particular track, I think, for the graded. And like some of the firms now, you know, they price up all the graded dogs in the mornings and stuff like that. And, you know, there's a, you could write a book about firms, you know, people getting sort of knocked back for bets and, you know, how people sort of... Uh, try and get bets on the Grady dogs. It's, it's very hard and there's always someone who knows more than you about Grady dogs. That's the reason why it's star. We've never done it, you know, the Grady dogs in the morning. But yeah, the open race scene, I like to follow quite closely and always keep an eye on. Clearly, obviously, with the derby that we sponsor. So we enjoy the, the derby and we enjoy looking at all the dogs through the year and, and getting involved in that. And yeah, I've been known to put the odd big price win right now and again. I think I put up that yeah. 50 poke last year, which is like broken clocks are right twice in a day sometimes. So I so, say... Clearly that day, the clock was right twice. Well, you're doing a bit self-depreciating there because you, you're not a stranger to being in front of a camera giving out your advice, which you which you do on a regular basis. So would you, are you like one of these, uh, 
do you go around to Jerry's house and watch the videos or are you uh, you know would you do any sort of serious studying like that or do you just remember oh what well, I do watch videos back yeah I mean I'll get the videos all the opens and and watch them back you can you know that then they're usually there pretty much for the uh, you know the general public now on the on the racing post website and you can I do tend to record them sometimes as well and watch them back too. So, yeah, I certainly keep all the opens up to date and, and keep me eye and keep me, you know, me eye and all that sort of stuff. And you occasionally see the same dogs and, and bits and pieces. Like we say, like Jerry said before, you know, some people see more than others. You know, Jerry says he sees things that other people don't see with his, with his X-ray eyes. But, you know, Jerry would be a much, much, much better judge than me. And I'm sure Jerry's sitting there going, lofty or nudy, sorry, that. You know? But, like, <laughs> I've never, never meant to be a pro gambler. You know, I've never made a living out of it. If I had to make a living out of... Uh, being a professional punter, I wouldn't be the size I am now, I don't think. But <clears throat> So what was your most memorable day at the races? Dep- that could be for any reason, whether you're back to winner or just a bloody good atmosphere. What anything that sticks out? Quite, I don't know, really. No, no, quite a few. I've enjoyed a few of the big days at Cheltenham when I've been there. I, I love being at Cheltenham at the festival. Um, probably, oh yeah, you always remember winning days, don't you? I mean, um, my good friend John Iverson, who works out in Gibraltar now, will mention on Twitter that I've Harmonic Way that won the Stewards' Cup at 16-1. to 1. I had quite a decent bet on that, and that was a real good day. And I seem to recall the, the Friday before, a good friend of mine put me on a, on a winner as well. I think it was 16-1 to 1 in my last race. So I seem to recall those two days pretty well, actually, the Friday and Saturday at Goodwood. That would have been a good few years back now, but I think that's been a good few years back now. So I was back in winners. Um, I've had a, a decent, nice a couple of ground derby nights sticking to mind. The um, the second one at Toast, I thought, was uh, was a really good night. Um, again, big help back in the winner there to vote as well. Cat, he posted at 33 to 1. But, and, of course, with Kevin Hutton, I've had a few dogs with who's down the years, who's you know a real nice fellow and obviously had a lot going on at the time when he had the dogs thief from the kennel and they were missing. And, yeah, that was, that was a really good night as well and, and quite emotional, really. But I really enjoyed that night at Toaster. The derbies at Toaster have been really good, actually, I must admit. I thoroughly enjoyed the... All three ground derbies have had at Toaster so far. That we've obviously starved been involved with sponsoring as well. And of course, you've got to mention you've absolutely got Arabian racing by the gonads. <laughs> That's the only thing you say. Yeah, every time it's going to go wrong one day, so you're going to know. See you one day over at Goodwood. I keep seeing that photograph of the, um, the on Ark Day when I think it was 66, 33, and 50. I only imagine making a book at Longshop. I'd have done my absolute orchestra that day, or the firm that done anyway. But yeah. So far, it always pays for the tie, as you say, in the evening. Whether it's the meal or the uh, different tie, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> now, you've, you've travelled to Ireland for both dogs and horses. I mean, how does it differ over there to here? I love Ireland, to be fair. It's just a different different way of life altogether over there, and the atmosphere is different. The racetracks have got a different atmosphere about them, I think, altogether as well. The bookmaking tends to be a bit more say, relaxed over in Ireland, but... A lot of people seem to know everybody and it's a case of, you know, someone knows someone who knows somebody in Ireland who's got a horse. And I think it's that slightly smaller pool where there's less horses and, and things like that. But I just enjoy the atmosphere going racing in Ireland a few times. You've obviously been there yourself and you've been over to our pitch at the Curra, which I've not been allowed on yet. But it's, uh, you know, I've been in the Curra myself, thought it's redeveloped and again, enjoyed the racing there. The grounds in Ireland, I mean, Shelbourne Park is, in my opinion, the best ground track in the world. And I, I love going there for the... Uh, for the ground derby finals over there the atmosphere is absolutely tremendous as well and you get a lot of you know british people going over there and enjoying it the day-to-day irish racing too it's just a lot more on a smaller scale it's a lot of owner trainers and you know one man his dog turning up at the track sort of thing big difference i find in ireland and i think it's a great difference is basically you can run a dog when you, you want to run it and not when somebody else wants to run it you know a few people have been with the dogs over here i think grant holland who was uh well, his champion trainer in Ireland now is obviously got a lot of good dogs and you know he left England to go to Ireland and that one of his main reasons was that you could run a dog in Ireland when you wanted to run a dog and not when they told you to run a dog at the track so you know being 
in charge of your own destiny, I think, with the Greyhound in Ireland is a lot better than some of the times over here at the moment. And again, I'm sure we'll come on to the Greyhound racing situation in the UK later on. But yeah, I think the Irish have got it right so far. Right, yeah, we're going to talk about dogs. I mean, you've owned dogs, mm. shares in dogs, right? Right. Uh, a couple outright, mostly in shares. Yeah, mostly shares. And is it? Do you think it's value for money? Uh, it, mm, it's fun. I think now with a dog, would you? You, you wouldn't say to anybody now to own a gravy dog in this country because for as much as it might say, you know, Mr. M. Chapman on the race cards, once that dog grades onto the track, once it's in, you don't own that dog. The dog's, the, the dog's owned by the track. The dog's owned by the racing manager. It runs when they want it to run, not when you want it to run. And that's a big difference, I think, now with, you know, with, with having dogs. I just think to myself, uh, there's not a lot of incentive now to have a greyhound that's a grader that's running at, you know, quarter past eight in the morning. You can't, the days of going to the track and having a few, you know, few mates around or having a dog and having a social night at the track are long gone because invariably your dog will be running at like two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, which is, you know, or worse, still, it could be running at like 10 past eight in the morning at some track. So I think eventually that's going to be, I'll say we're going to come onto the help of ground racing later on. But at the moment, having a gravy dog, I think there's absolutely zero incentive. Open race is a little bit different, but again, the money for them at the moment is ridiculous and you know in comparison to the prize money you can win it's getting a bit of national hunt racing to me really people to pay you know sort of like three four hundred grand for an irish point to point and it's beaten basically three horses around a field in ireland and then they go and run it for three grand in a chepstone novice hurdle it's that same sort of thing and you know people are still pay 20 25 grand for dogs and then running for 200 quid so you know you you do the math a lot of it is uh i think a bit of kudos now and a few hours are like that but you can understand why owners are leaving the game in their drives uh, but if after listening to all that somebody well, no i really do want a share in a dog what would be the best way of going about it what would which which angle would you go in at oh i think with a syndicate just get a you know just get a youngster get a pup to be fair i've got a couple of pups at the moment i don't think you know you don't know what you're going to get really it's all part of the fun and i think for a lesser outlay you can buy a pup at you know for say a thousand pound and bring him through to racing age you're talking maybe two or three grand to get him through to like 18 months to when he starts racing but you know if that's between like five of you it's, it's not a great outlay over the course of whatever and just go from there really i think that's probably the best idea at the moment but there, there's still there's a little bit of a if you can guarantee a dog to run on a friday and saturday night you know you're lucky but at the moment as you say um grand racing wouldn't be the greatest of uh well i'm a grady dog certainly to me so it wouldn't be the greatest of uh incentives okay now Rich Hassel said he's going to be great talking to Loftus, but don't let him go moaning and groaning. So we'll put the moaning and groaning at the end of this part. How healthy is Graham racing at the moment? And you've got the maximum of two minutes. Uh, there's a lot of bickering in Graham racing at the moment. A lot of people with agendas. People just don't seem to get on. You know, it could be one big happy family Graham racing. It's not. I'm not saying it's quite on life support yet, but it's certainly in intensive care. Now I'm not trying to be a you know a soothsayer there. And, and deep into it you can still see the crowd that turn up at Romford on a Friday or a Saturday night you can go to Crafton on a Saturday night and literally you can't move downstairs so people still want to go ground racing because the tracks are still mobbed on a Friday and Saturday night um look betting shops have taken it over you know a lot of people they sell the pictures overseas and hence they want to run races at sort of nine o'clock in the morning maybe for that that health's good for the sport when the money's coming in the money's coming through to the bookmakers but is it getting through to the grassroots level at ground racing it's not really, you know, because dogs are running for 100 quid in the morning, 50 quid run money, and a lot of them are just owned by the trainers now and just churn, churning over, and it's just, it's fodder, you know, for one of you, that's a horrible word to use, but a lot of the stuff in the morning is, is really that. But, you know, the sport, 
could get a shot in the arm it could certainly be made a lot more a lot more attractive and get people there in the evenings and get people out to still watch the racing how well they still come that's a difference you know people saying does a sport need a barry hearn does a sport need a, a magician to get it out it's it needs to be marketed better i think sometimes but the fact people can still go to tracks in the evening without really too much marketing a lot of tracks you know do Romford are very good at getting locals in and you know they spent a lot of money doing the other side up they can get people in there so it just needs a bit of more bit better marketing i think the track to be honest again to be honest okay lost like um like i said before we don't want this to get into doom and gloom but this final bit about the dog racing um has its terminal diagnosis been a little bit premature you i mean look i think dog racing will still be going a lot of people said about a few years ago about being there eight or ten super tracks when there was probably about 25 about you know a lot of closings and i think we're down to 17 now i mean milton Hall's just reopened all suffolk downs and it's now called and oxford which is literally 10 minutes up the road from me you know, should be opening as well later on this year sometime. That's 2022. Now, yeah, I mean, will there be eight or ten tracks still left in another five or ten years' time? I don't know. I think there might well be the case. I think it will be the case when there'll be a lot of betting shop racing, a lot of betting shop owned tracks. I think the open racing will still sort of survive sometimes in the evening and hopefully the derby will still be about. And if Star was still sponsoring it, it'll be great then. And I like to think that Toast is about again in another five or ten years time still going and still flying the flag with with the open racing but yeah ground racing in this country it's it's on a downward circle whether it'll still be in existence in you know 30 40 years time maybe in my you know after i've gone i'm not entirely sure but all the sats in a terminal decline at the moment it's probably it's not very well I'll put it that way okay now moving on to more <clears throat> cheerful stuff you um you work for star sports now as we all know <clears throat> Uh, so you help your your boss Benny the dog with the skills required to become your boss. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, look, I mean, listen, Ben's you know been certainly cavalier in his time, and it's strange how I actually got to know Ben. Obviously, I lost touch with Ben for a long time. I think he was working for Victor Chandler in Gibraltar, and I was I was on holiday in Tenerife, like you do, you know, lads staying somewhere at the cost like two hundred quid and drinking at ten o'clock in the morning. I got this phone call from an unknown Spanish number. I wasn't going to answer it, and it was Ben yakking on about he wanted to get some pictures and start betting at the race course and how it was great and he was going to start a credit business and i think this is his money he got left when he left vc and um he won it he had a bet didn't he did he oh, yeah yeah 300 with a fraction oh he knew the fraction see did he read your blog before with a fraction so no, or not he probably he did like of course he would have done actually. yeah exactly but no so he started with these pictures and we used to go to Sandown and kempton for the the jump meetings and you know we'd, we'd lay in the last on the end of the line with with Wharton Slaney, who with Barry Slaney before, who he got involved with with Barry because he wasn't even old enough to have a license at the time, and he used to go with Barry and Barry to lay the bets. And then, when he was old enough, we used to go and you know stand at the the sort of the London tracks, the Kemptons, the, the Sandowns, just go to Newmarket. This is before boards on rails. It was getting to the stage when boards were just going to come on rails, maybe. So a lot of people were turning up because they were thinking, oh, this might be good. You know, we'll start using our rails pitches. We'd be on the end and you know getting terrible value and i think ben would be the first to admit now you know he was getting picked off left right and center but if you've got a bad rails pitch that's so you're either going to be picked off and probably laying over the odds everything and i'm sure ben probably learned that way that you know getting laid over laying over the odds wasn't the way to go forward but many a time i'll be peering into the gloom at sandown and kempton alan i'll go with a jenny it was a jenny Pittman train bumper favorite usually always the way and you know what's in front what's happening and you know invariably very bit edwin and i will say about obviously we had the infamous thing with Sir Eric a couple of years ago in the uh, the Triumph Hurdle 
Ben doesn't watch a race. He just literally wants to bet to figures, get the horse in the book, take the money, do what he does, and then you look at the screen and to him it's just, you know, brown animals running around the field. He, he wouldn't know what was what. If I said it's all the, the Mac Tomb colours, all this colours, all that colours, he goes, what's that, what's that? He wouldn't know, he wouldn't watch a race and he just wants to know if he can get the favourite beat or whatever his leg beat and that's the main thing. But yeah, I mean, he's certainly, say, he's come on a bundle since then, I must admit, you know, he's learned, I think, to lay the right punters at the right price, which is a big thing. And obviously to lay the right people, which is, a you know, a big thing in this game. There's certain people you can lay and you know for a fact, if you lay them, you'll go skint, lay the right people. Again, a big, big effort you take, obviously laying people with credit because, you know, we all know with credit, you've got to win twice, you've got to beat them. And you've got to get paid as well. So, you know, and I think a lot, like a lot of people, he's learned there's a lot of knockers in this game and people who, you know, will have the bet and won't play. They're first in their hands with their hands out with draw when they want to draw. But then, you know, when it comes to getting them to play, they go on the missing list. And I think we've all seen that before. I mean, ourselves down the line, I'm sure even myself have gone missing a few times, you know, with a with a, with a, with a bit of a <laughs> credit on a pair to See you later with that one, you know. But yeah, I have paid everybody I know. I don't think I know oh, anybody at the moment. So. Well, that's pretty good. So somewhere along the line, <clears throat> This is not putting you, you know, not having a pop at you lot, but somewhere along the line, Ben's gone on to be this extremely successful businessman, and you're quite happy doing what you're doing. Do you sort of, do you wish that you'd sort of been a little bit more that way and been sort of sat in a mansion somewhere like No, I'm, 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 to be honest, so I'm the most laid-back person in the world, so, I mean, it's a polite way of calling myself lazy, really, but I'm just happy to sit and... Ben would call me a wage slave, you know, I'm just quite happy to go and do my job and do my bits and pieces and have my little bits here and there and, and do what I do and no good luck to him look I've enjoyed what I've done and I've enjoyed my time in the game and hopefully I've got a few more years left in it yet and I enjoy you know betting I also enjoy and I've made a book myself a few times and you know there's been a few times I've gone out and I've sort of been a standing bookmaker at the dogs and you know put my prices up there and and taking a few quid at Portsmouth dogs and I certainly used to enjoy doing that and at the races as well you know I've rep for a few people and I've, I've enjoyed theirs so again you know, going there and putting a few quid in myself. And yeah, I enjoy it. Look, and I've enjoyed being, I've enjoyed seeing it both sides of the fence. So I think I've got a better understanding of the game now, certainly having seen it both sides of the fence. I mean, Ben keeps calling it the game. It sounds like something else you mentioned that really, but you know, everyone calls it that now. So it's just uh, just the way it is. But no, look, I've seen it both sides of the fence and I enjoy, say, being a punter and, and being a bookmaker as well. Now, anyone that's worked on a pitch where you, around the pitch where you two are, would not miss that you and him can say things to each other i mean ben would call anybody that works for him staff and he says and you say stuff to him that staff can't say to a boss normally and he says things to you which probably would have been on the hotline to hr if he said it to anybody else <laughs> um, but it does appear to have elevated you to the higher echelons of staff because you're the union boss i'm union yeah so what's so, all that about i don't know this look a bit I think it's fair to say that Mr. Keith's a character, isn't he? I think everybody who knows Ben and people who even see him from, from a distance, you know, can tell Ben is, is a character. And um, we certainly, yeah, we have that sort of a good bit. So we say love-hate relationship. Like, I love him a bit, really. And I think Dick Dang, he does with me too. We always have this laugh and a joke about being a union face and calling people like that because, you know, maybe sometimes I won't do this and I'll, everything's got an excuse. If, I, if he says do something, it's like, well, no, I've done this and that. And Ben loves that. He loves the fact I always find an excuse for anything. I'll do it, don't get me wrong, I'm one of those people, it's the same, I'm, I'm the same generally, like, eventually I'll do it, but I'll always make an excuse for it at some stage, it's like, oh yeah, whatever, <laughs> and Ben's just picked up on that, we've always had that sort of, say, that love-hate relationship, really, with, with me and Ben, but no, look, we get on the stool together, and we always have a, a, a good laugh and a joke, um, you pretty much recently saw that, didn't you, at Ascot, weren't you, were there yourself, the, 
day you come and call yourself the artist. And we had a good old laugh about that, didn't we? And, but I was, I was betting in the wrong pitch, according to Ben. And he didn't stop moaning, did he, for the first sort of two hours. We're and then, in the silver ring. Why are you doing in this? What are we doing here? Why are we there? I did say, if you hadn't been there, I would have bet in the silver ring, literally down the bottom. It's like, well, why, are we, why are we here? Why aren't we there? I'd admit, I might, have, I might have had one wrong pick suggestion, maybe, but I didn't think it was a bad picture either. And at the end of the day, but grudgingly admitted himself, it wasn't too bad, did he? Well, he couldn't say it, could he? Because he just couldn't bring himself to say, oh, this isn't too bad. <laughs> really. He's even arguing now, Ben. <laughs> right, so Lofty, leave poor old Ben out of it now. You're on, on, on course as much as you were 30 years ago. We all grew up on course. I mean, you know, we know times have changed. Do you miss it? Do you miss not being there? Uh, do I miss day to day on course? I don't miss the travelling, certainly. I think, you know, that was, a, I mean, you know, I used to live in Portsmouth and go to Huntingdon, and you know, it was a two and a half hour drive at Newmarket. And even with you know, when we used to be with Ben, Newmarket's not that bad for me to be honest. But yeah, I sometimes don't miss the traveling and the day to day stuff when I was doing it four and five days a week or, or working in the afternoon and then rushing back for the dogs in the evening. So you don't miss that. That's a, a long way of doing it. Miss the day to day camaraderie, but I think there's a lot less bookmakers go now. You know, the, the camaraderie you would know yourself and your old days in the ring, you'd see the same characters. It was like a travelling circus, wasn't it? You'd see the same people every day, you know. I'll say it was, it was probably was quite a few clowns as well, really, wasn't it, at the, at the race you used on to see about. I'll say on, on both sides of the fence, yeah, you know. So, um, but look, no, there was some, you know, and there's some real characters that I think we've missed over the years who, you know, people have gone. I mean, like, I've seen a call working for a dear bloke, Michael Mendoza, who's no longer with us, so I think we could all, we could all mention, you know, I mean, if you ever had a, if you ever had a sort of a, a tab on the computer mark, lovable rogue, he'd be the first one underneath it. But, you know, he was a, a real character. And people like that maybe aren't quite about so much these days. I thought in the bookmaking, it's a bit more sterile nowadays, isn't it? A bit more head in the machine. And, you know, there's one or two people who pop their head above the parapet and try and be a bit more a bit more brighter. But, you know, yeah, the betting ring's not the vibrant place it was when we were about. I was saying all reminiscent here. It's all like yesterday's, isn't it? But like 25, 30 years ago, as you say, when we were... Say in our prime or in our pomp, if we ever were in our pomp, either of us, but yes, yeah, it's, it's not quite the same as it was. So, do I miss it completely day to day? Maybe not. I enjoy the big meetings now, I love going to Cheltenham and Royal Ascot and the places like that. But I think, yeah, if you told me that I could have to go to uh, you know, hunting in this afternoon or to Plumpton on Monday, I'd be a bit like I'd pull a union face, probably. <laughs> now, we're talking about today. <laughs> We're at Star Sports, even though you go to big meetings, predominantly online. You're sat here in front of your quadruple screen, screens. So if you've embraced the online betting, the exchanges, all that stuff, and it still be as much fun, you know, can you get into that like you used to get into jumping off the stool and hedging and uh, trying to beat the punters? Yeah, sort of I mean, look, you can certainly see, look, I mean, I'm the first to admit, I like following money, I like following people. A lot of sharp people bet, you know, with Star. And we see a lot of sharp money, especially for horses and out, you know, in the mornings or overnight or whatever. So... I certainly enjoy following the money and trying to be ahead of the market. doesn't do accounts much good. I'll be the first to admit that. But, yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's a different side of the story now. It's, you know, something I've, I've got into and I've really embraced and I enjoy the, the trading side. But that's always been my background as well, really, working, you know. It's the same. It's probably a smooth transition. If you've worked on a race course, you understand the figures. You understand, you know, percentages. You understand money and how money talks and how money moves certain things. And I just think, yeah, you can embrace that into a, into a trading role, what I've got now. So... Look, I've moved forward. I mean, it's still the old-fashioned way of, you know, the, the book and computer. It's it's a bit different now to, you get all these sort of 24-year-olds at a university with all their algorithms and quants and whatever they want to deal with nowadays. And a lot of the time, I think that's what you're dealing with now with a lot of these firms. You know, they are run by accountants, aren't they? And, and by being counters, a lot of the, shall we say, the sort of multinational bigger firms and maybe Star aren't quite that way in, inclined. You know, they do like sometimes still play the punter as opposed to just playing the... Uh, 
the figures and plan the balance sheet at the end of the day. So five years time, where's Lofty going to be? Still being the union rep? Oh, I'll still be part of the union. So I'd have thought, yeah, they'd always be part of the union. They never, never, never get that out of me, will they? Um, oh, listen, I, I lot of think I'm still healthy and still here, breathing and alive and and what have you. And um, yeah, look, I'd love to still be involved with the game, and I'm sure I will be in some way or another. It's it's been in my blood, and as you say, it comes through from my uncle and granddad for all the all the lifetime, and it's still there now, and it's always going to be part of me, you know, and it will course through my brain, veins, I mean my brains, I mean my veins. So I take my last breath, you know, I'm sure I'll still be a, still be a punter and a bookmaker and, and be in the betting industry at heart, yeah. Brilliant. Well, on that note, Martin, lofty Chapman, thank you very much. Pleasure, sir. Thank you. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.com. .co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.